I imagine Sarah Silke in the fifth grade, hearing about the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the newspaper, her 10-year-old self enraptured by a map that seemed to burst with brand new countries. As she traces the borders, her sense of the world explodes beyond the boundaries of where she grew up in Virginia. From this moment, she commits to a career understanding Russia and its politics. I see her carving academic pathways that flip the way higher education goes about research so it's more equitable. Sarah's commitment to diversity and inclusion feels so natural and unassuming, it invites all of us to join in. I can't imagine someone so kind and curious as Sarah, who was jealous of people who grew up during the 80s and the Cold War. She's an academic who thinks endlessly about Putin, policy reversals, and plausible deniability. And yet, despite exploring cynical moments of human behavior like reducing pensions during a World Cup, she remains fascinated by others' stories and committed to equity. As you'll discover in our conversation, what intrigues me the most about Sarah is that she doesn't color the heavy topics she discusses with her own opinions. She guides us to our own. On the ampersand, we call this bringing together of the impossible, the alchemy of anding. Together, we'll hear stories of humans who imagine and create by colliding their interests. Rather than thinking of and as a simple conjunction in that conjunction-junction kind of way, we will hear stories of people who see and as a verb, a way to speak the beautiful when you intentionally let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. As St. Mary Oliver asks, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Oh, I love this question. When I'm mothering, creating, and collaborating, it reminds me to replace a singular idea of what I think I should become with a full sensory verb about experiencing. I'm Erica Randall. And this is Sarah Soki on The Ampersand. It's interesting because I was teaching a big introductory comparative politics class, it was like politics around the world class, this past spring when Russia invaded Ukraine. And so we weren't directly talking about Ukrainian politics or Russian politics, but I brought it into the class because how could I not for a variety of reasons? And was just very honest that I found it devastating. And in that case, you know, we weren't always talking about what was happening there. That wasn't the topic of the class, and that, that wouldn't have made sense. But in that case, I think, too, acknowledging that these are awful things. And, and we care about them not for abstract academic reasons, but because people are dying, and they're going to die because of this. And I try to never lose sight of that because it's easy when you're an academic and you're obsessed on your own with a topic and you're just interested in it to forget that there's a real world and this impacts real people every day. And not just selling the material, but do you ever feel like you have to sell yourself, like show up as a human more in your research and with students? And how do you do that? What does it look like to meet the Sarah who knows, whew, I'm going to deliver a hard lecture today. I'm going to share some real world data on things that are going to impact all of us in some way or another. How do you show up as Sarah? And how does, like, and I want to know, I want to know how you, how you see yourself separate from the academic. What, 
Talk to me. Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for it, though. I think it's taken a, a long time for me to get comfortable with me as myself in this role mm. and sort of not like I'm just going in and like, I'm going to pretend to be a professor now. I actually am a <laughs> professor. but Or I, I'm going to play this role where I'm going to be very professional. I'm not going to talk much about my personal life or personal experiences. But at some point, relatively early on when I was teaching, I, I was talking to my partner and saying, I, I don't know how to get them engaged in this. I'm not sure how to get them interested. And he said, you go to Russia all the time. You love Russia. Tell them about going to Russia yeah. and tell them why you care about this. So what was the first story you told about Russia? Oh, gosh, I don't know what the first story I told was. I mean, I told stories about my experiences traveling there and mishaps with the healthcare system there because I taught about the Russian healthcare system. And I have very limited experience personally with the Russian healthcare system, but a bit. And so I told some of those stories or stories about people there, things like that. And I started it took me a long time to get comfortable though with figuring out where my personal stories might fit in yeah. or where talking about myself as a person might fit in but when I started to learn to do that I realized that I connected a lot better with students but with other people in general and so that's that's been an, an evolving thing but it's not my natural go-to to talk about my personal experiences or you know, sort of the the original why I do what I do or why I picked Russia and I have to very consciously when I teach, think about, oh, I should tell them I, how I got into yeah, this. Because I really want to know, this? too. I'm trying to imagine, was it, I see you, like, in fifth grade, and you're, like, at your little desk, and all of a sudden, there's, like, <laughs> the Kremlin comes up, and, and like, big-eyed Sarah, like, kind of red curly hair, is like, this is my life's work. Like, re- truly, when did this come to you? That Was it the onion tops of buildings? Was it the farmland? Was it the language? Was it the literature? You know, it really sounds strange, but honestly, it was the politics, and that sounds... Really? So From big, fifth grade? <laughs> about that age. Yeah, that's about right. But the first big... Big political memory I had, the first big event that I really paid attention to was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And it was because my family hardly ever talked about world events or politics or, or anything. anything like that. <laughs> and when this happened, they talked about it. And I remember hearing, and this wasn't quite right, but I didn't understand that, that there were this brand new countries on the map. And they weren't from nowhere. They weren't brand new. But to me, there were these brand new countries on the map. And this was going to change the world politics forever. And I just, and I saved from my local paper as a 10-year-old, the, the map of the new countries. Wow. And I was really... This is just how I saw it in my mind. <laughs> this is exactly it. Incredible. Okay, keep going. And so so that's how I initially got interested in it. And I had a, I have two older brothers, and one of them happened to take uh, Russian language at our public high school. There just happened to be someone who taught Russian when he was there. And where, I just... Where was this? This was in Virginia. There just happened to be someone at our public high school in Virginia Beach Amazing. that taught Russian. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And that... I, I wasn't able to take Russian in high school by the time I got there. But my brother did that. And then I'd had this was my first big political memory. And I was on my high school debate team. And one of the topic for a whole year was foreign policy with Russia. And that just done. sealed the deal. It was done. done. It was done. I, I, I was obsessed with this. And it really was the politics. And then later I started to get into more of the culture. But I really didn't know what I was getting into because I was a kid and I was just, you know, learning about this for the first time. What was it like that first time getting on a plane to go to Russia? This thing, this like mysterious, impossible, mythical land. 
oh, it was amazing. I really had to talk myself into it, though. I had never been to a foreign country before I went to Russia. People in my family didn't really travel much. My parents don't have passports. They still don't today. I had a brother that had gone on some like mission trips with a, the church, and that was the only person I knew who had gone to another wow. country. And so I had never been to Canada. And so I, I really went all out for that first foreign yeah, trip. Yeah, you did. And in fact, I had a professor at the time who said, well, you know, you've never been to a foreign country. Maybe you want to do a summer program that's not as long, you know, maybe. And I thought, no, no, I want to go the whole semester. I want to do study abroad. This is what I, I want to be do. there when it snows. Right. <laughs> I want to be in there the summer. <laughs> I want to be there in a that's heavy right. coat. But I knew I didn't want to go for like a week or so. I really wanted to go and do this. And so, but I really had to talk myself into it uh, on on the way there. I was so nervous about it. But it was just amazing. I just loved it. I had worked so hard to get there and figure out how to do it. I had to, the college that I went to didn't have a study abroad program in Russia. So officially, I had to take a leave of absence. I didn't get any credit for it. That's unreal. I, I paid for it myself because oh my my, gosh, uh, my parents weren't going to pay for study abroad. Yeah. And, and you knew this. Was... And I knew. And so I had worked all these odd jobs and saved up and found a program I could afford, which was like on the uh, relatively on the cheap and. Were you staying with a family? Or I stayed with. I stayed in a dorm for the first week or so, and then I had a host family that I stayed with that I then knew for. I've known since then, since two thousand two. And did they cook for you? And did you start to get? So you said you knew the politics, well, and then the geography, and then came the culture. Yes. And with the culture comes food. Yes. So, do you talk to your students about the food and talk to me about you the know, food? Because I- I don't. It just doesn't occur to me to. <laughs> it honestly doesn't occur to me to talk to them about the food. Okay, so I have a I have a collaborator I work with who's who's Russian, and she, um, she speaks uh, a lot in Russian in our work, and I speak in English, and we talk about Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt and the two guilts. <laughs> and um, she talks about making Russian food with her grandmother and her mother in the kitchen, and what a sacred and terrible time that it is. <laughs> Do you have stories of being in the kitchen for the first time in Russia and, and what you ate or what you smelled or how they Oh, ate? I do. I, it never occurred to me to dwell on it, but absolutely I do, because there's certain things, like dill goes on everything in, in Russia. And I love dill. Whenever I see dill or I smell it, I just love it because it reminds me So you should bring dill that. to your classroom. Did you like dill before? I don't know. I honestly, I didn't. I was not a foodie kind of person. I didn't think about food a whole lot. At the time that I first went to Russia, I was also a vegetarian. Oh, gosh. Uh, I know. <laughs> and so and and they asked uh, this host family didn't ask me, but the person organizing it, they were really concerned about this. And they said, but but what does she eat? What can we give her? That would be Sarah leans in. But what does she but, eat? What does she eat? And it was really it's funny to say now because it's not that odd to be a vegetarian, but it, it was they weren't sure how to broach. And so, and I ate. So it wasn't that you were American; it was that you were vegetarian. They had had lots of study abroad students, so they the, the hosting of a student was not new to them at all. But the vegetarian part was a little, and they were so nice about it. It was Larissa, was my host mom, was so nice about it, and so lots of soups that probably had a meat base. But I kind of looked the other way, and I ate fish while I was there. It was kind of a, my compromise as well. But uh, the Russian food that I love and that I've eaten is not fancy, highbrow, foodie, gourmet style food. It's like I what I tell people, which I think Russians find is very odd. What makes me nostalgic are, are like the soups and the meat and potato things uh, and the salads. They make these little salads where everything's chopped up, like the beets are chopped up, the potatoes are chopped up and all this. So like when you say salad in Russian, it means a wholly different thing than mm. if you said it in the U.S. And cafeteria food, like because yeah. that was. 
is what I, you know, that makes me very nostalgic for it. For for Russia is is that kind of food. Or like the cheap food I would buy on the street because I never had a lot of money while I was there. And so I was just, you know, sort of getting whatever. It wasn't like I was going to high-end restaurants yeah. and like eating uh, the sort of best of the best of Moscow's culinary world at the time. But yeah. But it's the nostalgia. I love, oh, there's, that's such a potent word and how it attaches to sense and, mm-hmm. and bringing that to food and thinking of it, the soups. Yeah. I think soup is a quintessentially nostalgic Yeah situation. And there's things you don't even think about, like things like the way you cut the potatoes and Mm. the shape they're in in the soup. Like we don't do that here. It's just a a little bit different. Or the way that you just make it any of it. Or like putting a dollop of sour cream on top of soup. That's very Russian. And so there's something too then to the gestures that folks do after watching the person before them cut the potatoes, that they cut the potatoes the same way and it creates a different shape. Yeah. The way that the body and the function come together to create nostalgia in your life in America now, if you see a potato floating yeah. in a soup, that reminds right. <laughs> you. That's so beautiful. I um, I thought of Russia for the first time. I grew up Cold War era and being scared. And then I remember White Nights and Baryshnikov and that Russia was a place to leave as a dancer. It was a place to leave and it was an exporter of things. Uh, I, I, I thought of that so so specifically in my childhood, particularly in The Nutcracker, which was actually a a ballet about exporting coffee and tea and candy. It was about getting Russia out to the world. People think of it as, oh, French and Italy, like celebrating other nations. But it was, it's an interesting political ballet. But I think of um, Russia and exporting. And it's so, it's just so interesting to to hear you in Russia. And I think of getting away from because that's what dancers were doing in the 80s right? and in cha- changing the landscape of dance in this country. Besides White Nights, I have only terrible, r- probably super tacky Russian memories of Dr. Zhivago and my mother. <laughs> I'm so jealous, though, that you were paying attention to Russia in the 80s because it was such an interesting time. <laughs> You're jealous and of me. And I, I really like the I, for the longest time, I was so sad that I had not been paying attention to I me. Mean, I was a child, but were in, you the alive 80s, in the 80s, I was born in 80. So uh, like, so it's I mean, okay. I'm glad you weren't paying attention and hiding <laughs> under your desk. I, I probably should not have. No, you should not the, have. You know, I, yeah. in ele- early elementary school. And so I wasn't, but it was such a fascinating time. And it's so interesting to look back now and realize that my awareness of Russia started at a very unique time, which was really when the Soviet Union dissolved. And the 90s are so fascinating, but so unique. And so... The stereotypes from the 80s, I didn't really have in my head because my parents weren't really talking about the Soviet Union or then Russia a lot. And so I became aware of it in the 90s. So 90s Russia to me was the Russia I knew. And then by the time I actually went to Russia in the early 2000s and 2002, things were going pretty well in Russia. The economy was stable. Oil prices were up. It was safe to go. It was relatively easy for Americans to go to Russia. And so I showed up and thought, what in the world were people talking yeah. about? What, this what is the great. big deal? It's safe. <sighs> it's, you know, and Moscow was, it is not like the rest of Russia. Is this big, rich European city, even in the early 2000s. It was this unique moment that I, I had a very different view of Russia than people even a few years older than me who had more of the 1980s. But you wanted, in there. but you, but you had a craving for that. Oh, I did. 80s I was moment. so jealous of people that got to be in Russia when the coup attempts happened in the early 90s. 
is this is a I normal feeling, Sarah. This. this is a totally <laughs> normal response. Yeah, I really, I was like, oh, how great would it have been? And in fact, I think for many of those people, it was quite traumatic. And people who were doing research there, who were academics, which is what I am now, uh, it was like, oh my, what's happening? And this isn't safe. And how are we going to keep doing research? And it could have gone very badly. And for a while, it, well, the '90s were fairly chaotic, but it, it was. In some ways, and so I don't want to overstate the comparison, but in some ways, maybe a bit analogous to what's happening now, where there's this big thing happening yeah. that's very traumatic for a lot of people. So you don't see yourself going anytime soon? I don't think that I can yeah. anytime soon. I, I periodically investigate if I technically could, if I really tried, and maybe I could get into Russia. I would have to get a visa, and I'm not sure how that would work right now. I ended my affiliation with the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, which I had for a long time. And right at this moment that we're talking, it wouldn't be safe, really, for me to go into Russia or try to go into Russia. So I really don't know what what I'll do with that or how my research will. I've just sort of had to let it evolve as it evolves. And I'm honestly trying to refocus my attention more on Ukraine and, and studying Ukrainian politics, even though I've always come from this very... Russian perspective was interesting. You, you talked about the, the decolonization and what you do. There's people in my field who talk about decolonizing the kind of research political scientists do in the region. And I, I've realized through this conflict that taking this very Russian-centric perspective, I mean, this is a colonial imperial power, and you're taking a perspective of the one biggest, most powerful country at the expense of really understanding other countries. And I'm still wrapping my head around how I need to change how I do research to, to think about it differently. That's a huge and potent charge. And it seems like it's aligned with the work you're doing in Studio Lab and kind of flipping the way we think about getting students engaged in research and getting anyone engaged in research from a diversity and equity and inclusive perspective. And Again, here to ampersanding, which is what Erica's brain does all the time, you were able to connect a need in this country and in our community of study and in your area and in social sciences writ large and flip a model to first put equity and diversity and inclusion. It's the first thing that we're looking at when we're thinking about how you developed with your colleagues a lab to get students engaged in research. This is usually part of a litany of things but as the as the as the organizing principle it's such a cool way to get students to end with research and change the planet can you just even tell me what was that moment as you are thinking about refocusing your research into Ukraine and looking at the colonizing forces of Russia were they aligned for you with the way you were thinking about setting up teaching opportunities or it was initially i wanted to change how we were teaching students in the social sciences in regards to research. And I saw this really, initially, I didn't even have the DEI component fully in my head. It was sort of in the background because I started, the very early pilot of this was the summer of 2019. And I wanted to change how we did research in the social sciences because it seemed to me that we were really underutilizing and underincorporating students into research. And I had spent years at CU at that point telling students about UROP, which is a great program, undergraduate research opportunity program, pays students to work with faculty or to do their own research. But the student really has to take the initiative to find the faculty member and get them uh, on board. And so what I found was that a lot of students didn't know that existed. 
And even when they did, I could tell that there were certain students that were more comfortable seeking out faculty. And then there were students that they would need a little bit of help finding a faculty member or they wanted to get involved in research, but they didn't have a clear idea because they're undergraduate students in a huge university, what kind of research they wanted to do or what was even possible. And so they they, didn't have a map of Russia delivered to them by a fairy (laughs) Russian godmother that says research to seek out the people that did that Uh, very understandably didn't know where to start. And sometimes, I mean, our faculty are wonderful, but sometimes faculty also didn't know where to start. And so faculty were not very receptive because they weren't sure how to make that connection either. And so that's where it started with that early pilot summer of 2019. And then January of 2020, we were going to pilot it in the whole political science department. I got a little bit of money from the department to do this. And we were piloting it January of 2020. And then, of course, the world fell apart. The pandemic started. The Black Lives Matter movement, which had existed, did exist before, but took on new momentum within a short period of time. That raised my awareness of something that people have been saying for a long time. Yeah, but the university but started The university speaking. started paying attention to. I started paying attention to, although I was late on board because, of course, I don't want to suggest that this, like, all of a sudden people said that this was a problem. They'd been saying it for a while, for a long time. And so all of those things were happening, and it just sort of clicked in my head that Studio Lab should be putting diversity, equity, and inclusion first. Yes. This was a concrete thing that we could do, depending on how we set it up. Uh, and also during the pandemic that we we operated mostly remotely and we were on a much smaller scale than we are now. But for the students we connected with, for some of them indicated this was really a kind of lifeline to connecting with faculty and having some kind of personal relationship in a situation where you're not in person, you're not on campus, you're not having. Yeah. And so it wasn't the most auspicious timing to pilot a new program. But it was actually very fortuitous in that we had an opportunity to fill a need that existed right then. Yes. We did that and it ran in political science. And then this academic year is the first year it's running in the social sciences. But the the key thing, like you said, is we have to put diversity, equity and inclusion first because labs are great and it's great to have undergrad research assistants. But the way the model was working is faculty were and this is understandable. It's a bit of human nature. They were picking out their best students, the most extroverted students, the students that And those often were students that were already poised to do really well, right, or already had, they came in really well prepared for college, they knew how to network, they knew how to do all these things. And I was thinking of, uh, you know, I was thinking of 18-year-old Sarah going to college, also looking for this and not finding it. That Would she have known how to do this? Would she have approached someone, even with the specific goals that you I had? I did at some point, but I did in a very bumbling, awkward way that you do when you're an undergrad, because you don't know what you're doing yet. And so (laughs) and that's okay, Right. And so what I wanted to say was, look, do you want to do research with faculty? Just fill out this simple application and tell us that you don't have to have a really clear idea of what you're interested in. You don't have to even have experience doing any kind of job or that is such a gift to not have to totally know (laughs) and still say you want to have to pretend like, you know, like just tell us what you're interested in. If you know, if not, that's fine. We have faculty apply separately. And then we we do the work of matching them up and providing some infrastructure. But so we do that work of trying to match them and then kind of like checking in to like 
is this working well? Are you working well with this person? Do we need to match you with somebody else? And we rarely have to move things around a whole lot, but sometimes we do. And that's what we can provide for both. And that makes it so incredible, better for the faculty and better for the students. You know, there's some very practical benefits to it. Like it can get you some experience on your CV. It can connect you with faculty. But I think that there's a more meaningful kind of connection that can oh, happen. There's a whole life coaching thing. <laughs> if we get them early on at any stage, I think it's beneficial. But early on, it can be a good stepping stone. Later on, it can be a good building on the, the what you've done at the university already. But there's a lot, a lot of research about how traditional labs that incorporate undergrads perpetuate inequalities because they're picking the students that are already poised to do well for understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. But unless you explicitly make it a goal and have a, a concrete strategy for how you're going to disrupt that perpetuating of inequalities, you're not going to get that. And we have just such an opportunity at the University of Colorado. We're a big research university. And so this is what part of what we can offer that some other universities and colleges can't. Well, the way that you even talk about studio and lab as a dancer, I think of those two things together that often I'm having to convince folks to understand a dance studio is like a laboratory. And so when I first heard the name of this pro- program, I'm like, that name is perfect. Oh, it makes me so happy. I have to give credit to Adrian Shen, though. Oh, it's I didn't, I'm terrible naming things. And so Adrian Shen's a political science professor, and he uh, called it, he, ha- he had this beautiful explanation of like a studiola and a studio and the master training with the apprentice. And the lab is really like we think of those in the natural sciences more, but pairing those together. together. That was it. That's And I think having it at like the art, we're, we're in the social sciences now, but I'm hoping we'll expand to the arts and sciences more broadly yes. because like I think of things like theater and dance, yes. right? Or dance studios. Like there are all different kinds of ways to get people to collaborate. And this is really just about collaborating with undergrads in ways that make sense for both the student and the faculty member. Well, that title has that welcome in it that crosses those disciplines. And it does do that thing for me. A studio is an embodied space. Here we are, you know, in a recording booth in a sound studio talking to one another, making something new in a lab a different way of, I I see rows, I see more linearity. And in a studio, I feel the circularity and the conversational. They're all collaborative, but they have different ways of facing. And when you imagine those things together, it is an invitation to different kinds of folks who want to look at work Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that that's your reaction to it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That, That was one of the first things that landed on me. I tend to not or at least I tend to try to not lie and to be transparent. And you actually study people who lie for a living. And I'm so interested in what have you learned? What strategies would you share? What (laughs) takeaways to be an expert, you know, somehow beloved while still hated liar? Do you have any strategies? No. <laughs> Maybe. Wanna, well, so you, you don't want this to political proliferate. Scientists, political scientists would talk more about blame avoidance. The interesting thing about that question uh, is that a lie includes intention or knowledge that you have to be intentionally saying something you know to be false, which, of course, political parties, organizations, politicians do all the time. But we often don't. A hundred percent know if the person knew it was false or there's some ambiguity in that. And so in political science, we talk more about blame avoidance. Mm. Which, uh, so if you have to do something unpopular or you have to go back on something or reverse, then you would do things that are blame avoidance. So that's like if you just got reelected, do something unpopular because you've got a while before you have an election or do it during a big event like the World Cup or something which Putin has taken advantage of. And so that's not so much about lying, but it's really about 
about blame avoidance, oh, finding someone else to pass the buck to. And so I think what politicians and political parties are often doing when they're lying is trying to create plausible deniability and ambiguity and pass the buck onto someone else. And so like a common strategy is to say that it's not your fault, it's some other actor. And Putin uses this quite actively. Um, he'll blame the governors of regions. It's not our fault. It's that the governor of your region is really corrupt and not doing what they're supposed to do. It's not my fault. It's that Western nations are funneling weapons into Ukraine. Otherwise, we would have had this resolved a long time ago. And so blaming the West, there is an entirely different narrative in Russia from the Russian media sources in the country about both what is happening and why it's happening. And that the West, both Western countries in Europe and the United States both started and are perpetuating the war. And that is genuinely the narrative. And there is some level of belief in that in the Russian public. It's the it's difficult to say with a lot of precision, especially right now, but there's some level of the West bears responsibility for the, Russia's war against Ukraine in some way. And so that's the kind of thing you do. So it's not really so much about lying as it is about not being blamed. Wow. That is, I just think of like a Russian punk band named Blame Avoidance. <laughs> you know, that just feels like... So, oh, that sounds good. Somebody should start that. Somebody type. should start that. Yeah. Well, it, and, and it is, it's interesting to flip it and have that, hold that in my brain from the, maybe there isn't malice at the beginning, but how do we not hold it in the end? Right. And, and there's other instances where... Politicians want to do something that they know is unpopular, but it seems to be they think is the right policy decision. This is what we saw in the 1990s in Central and Eastern Europe a lot, that they wanted to do these economic reforms that I think by a lot of accounts, many people really thought were the right economic reforms, but they knew were going to be painful in the short term, but the hope was that in the long term would be better. So they had to figure out ways that they could be democratic and have competitive elections, but engage in policies they thought were necessary necessary but painful and sell the public on those. And there's cases where they did sell them on necessary but painful reforms, although I, there's a lot to say. That's to my area of research is that politics of economic reform. So I could go on and on about that. That also but, sounds like ballet training. is. It really, really, yeah. Oh, necessary but painful reform. Oh, that is well, just Russian kind of ballet training. training. I yes. never thought of that, but that's true. Oh. It's like any kind of training. Oh, I understand yeah. that. I understand yeah. that in my human body. I think we do. <laughs> I think we do the same thing. All right, it is time for the quick and dirty. It has okay. to be quick. Okay. It doesn't have to be dirty. Okay. But I like saying that. Okay, we're gonna. I'm gonna give you a topic, and you're gonna say the first word or thought that comes to mind, and it's gonna be containing and. This is where we get into our okay. theme. Okay. So. I if I say give me the best ice cream cone and I would say anything from little man ice cream in a handmade cone. See how there was and in the hand. Okay. So it's really open. It's big. Okay, so, I'll try. You'll okay. tell me if I'm doing it wrong. I'm gonna tell you if you're doing it right. Okay. I'm gonna tell you that you are doing it right. <laughs> okay. Right. Best band with and in it. The best band with the word and in it. Mm-hmm. Or first thing first band comes to your mind. Um The Killers and Someone else? <laughs> that was not an and. Try again. Try again, Sarah. Uh, the killer's an Arctic monkey. Oh, 
The Killers and Pussy Riot. There's a Russian one. If we, I, I love that. We got to get Pussy Riot in here. If we would have failed this entire interview if we hadn't talked if it, about that it. that hadn't come up. Yes. A, yeah. Oh, thank you so much. That makes this lady happy. Okay, if you were going into your anding closet and you would come out, what would be your best anding outfit? You'd be wearing this and... I don't know. All I can think about is what I'm wearing now. Tell, well, tell okay. me what you're wearing. They don't know. Uh, tights and a, uh, and a dress. Okay, tights and a dress. Okay. That reminds me of the Dixie Chicks, tights on my boat. <laughs> okay, I'm, but we're not talking about the chicks right now. All right, when it's on the menu, you'll always order this and... Oh, it's got to be cheese and pasta. Mm. Cheese and pasta, yeah. Cheese and pasta. Yeah. Not Some just mac and cheese. cheese. You made, it sound, you made mac and cheese sound fancy. It, there's a fancy cheese on the menu. I'm going to order the fancy cheese on the menu. Fancy okay. cheese and pasta. pasta. Okay, perfect. A, a made-up TEDx talk that you know would get so many views with and in it. Oh, my goodness. The possibilities seem endless of the things well, that... Well, when you and, they are endless. Um... I don't know. There used to be an ongoing joke in political science about if you put like the, the uh, politics in the age of terrorism and Scarlett Johansson, then anybody would take it or something. <laughs> something like that. Like the politics of terrorism and Scarlett Johansson. And then anybody would be in the cloud. Like that's how you get enrollments. That's up. how you do that it. That was the joke. Um, that's yeah, perfect. So I'll stick with that. That's perfect. I love that. I'm taking that class next semester <laughs> right. from you. Okay. An Ander you admire. An Ander I admire. Oh, gosh. There's a lot of people I admire. I mean, I think right now, I, I, I oh, and Ander I admire. Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. Mm. The Ukrainian people and Zelensky. I, I would put the people first probably, but yeah. Yeah, let's put the people first. Yeah. In every episode, we ask our guests to give advice as if you were at a graduation or just talking to a beloved. And, you know, in, that, in my Irish blessing sort of way, I would say, and may the road rise up to meet you. Can you give us a... Oh, I wish I could. I feel like everything I would say would be very cliche. And so... Let's try it. They're cliches for a reason. Oh, that's true. They are cliches for a reason. So this is advice I would give at a graduation. Or to just a a human. I think it would be like a a very like, and just keep going. I've really always liked, I think it's the real kid poem that people cite all the time, or they, they... um, say all the time now this sort of no feeling is final just it's something like just keep going no feeling is final kind of thing and I, I think that really speaks to me I, I don't think it's terribly original and it's cliche for a reason but I think that you just keep plodding along that was CU Boulder Associate Professor Sarah Soki on the ampersand if you'd like to learn more about Sarah's research on policy reversal or the College of Arts and Sciences Studio Lab we'll leave more information in our show notes The Ampersand is written and produced by me, Erica Randall, and Tim Grassley. If there are folks you'd like to hear from on The Ampersand, do please email us at asinfo at colorado.edu. Our theme music was composed and performed by Nelson Walker, a CU Boulder alum, brilliant cellist, composer, and a fantastic dancer. Episodes are recorded at Interplay Studios in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Erica Randall. And this is the ampersand.